What is a poet? Soren Kierkegaard asks. Uh, and then he answers. He says, an, a poet is an unhappy man who hides deep anguish in his heart, but whose lips are so formed that when the sigh and cry pass through them, it sounds like lovely music. And people flock around the poet and say, sing again soon. <laughs> and then as Kierkegaard does, he defines it, that is, may new sufferings torment your soul. <laughs> Let your lips be fashioned as before, for the cry would only frighten us, but the music, that is blissful. That's a poet. Well, today we look at a poet. We look at a poet and his poetry, but particularly a psalm of lament. Now, in the Psalter, and that's just the word for the book of Psalms, in the Psalter there's three major types uh, of psalms in the Psalter. Those are praise, thanksgiving, and lament. And you're like, what about those imprecatory ones I pray on Friday nights? I said three major types of psalms, okay? Yes, those are there, but three major types are praise, thanksgiving, and lament. Now, you probably get what praise is. You probably get what thanksgiving is. Some of us have no clue what lament is. That's fine. That's why we're here. A psalm of lament is a cry. It's a cry to God. Even an angry cry to God. For help from an individual or a community in deep distress. That's what it is. It's crying out to God in your pain, in your distress. The goal of the Psalms of Lament is to cry out to God for help in distress and rest in Him. The, the psalmist again and again and again tell us that this world is broken, this world is difficult, this world is painful, this world has suffering, this world has enemies. But the Lord is our refuge. And so that's what the, the Psalm of Lament is leading us to, is to cry out to Him and, and to take refuge in Him. The Psalms, like it or not, show us how to suffer. Some of us just don't want to suffer. But if I could use that 90s reference, the Psalms is like that dummy guidebook to suffering, right? That's what we need, the dummy's guide to suffering. We'd say, no, I don't want to suffer at all, but you've got to learn how to, because you're going to. And that's what the Psalms do. We look at the life of Jesus and in his suffering, he prayed honestly, and he prayed the Psalms. So we follow in his footsteps. We pray his Psalms. We sing his songs. Now, two notes before we get into Psalm 13. Two notes that I want you to know. Set the context. Number one, the Lord reigns is the central theme of the entire Psalter. The Lord reigns. If there's one unifying central theme to all 150 psalms, it's this, the Lord reigns. Secondly, this specific, specific psalm was written to the choir master, which means this was to be sung in the congregation. 
It would have been sung liturgically, not read speedily. The first four verses would have been slowly repeated with space and time to dwell on the problem of God's absence. Where are you? How long will you hide forever? Now, some of you guys, I hear you guys at parties or your little conversations talk about uh, your preferences in songs, right? Some of you guys love those more joyful, exuberant, triumphant, repetitive, let's go, right? Others of you guys like 10 verses that are so clunky we can't sing, right? That's some of you. That's some of you. You're like, oh, verses. I don't like hooks. What is this? Mainstream? Give me the verses. The ones where we have to put like eight footnotes under each slide to tell you what those words mean because you don't know, but you want to sing them. That's a tangent, but what I'm trying to say is this is how they would sing. So I, I get that some of us don't like repetition, but repetition is good when it turns to meditation. When you dwell, when you mull, when you, instead of read speedily through a psalm of lament, but repeat it and think through oh, this is me. I felt this before. What's my questions? What's my angst? What's going in, on in my life? Where's my pain? Where's my suffering? What do I need to take to the Lord? And that's, that's what the Lord does. He gives you these psalms to help you guide your emotions and says, here, do it and come to me. So let's look at them first four verses I think would have been sung repeatedly mold over first one Psalm 13 what page was that 477 if you need a Bible if you don't have a Bible at all take the one in the pew Psalm 13 verse 1 how long Lord will you forget me forever how long Will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? How long will my enemy dominate me? When's the timeline? What's the deadline? When's this going to end? Are we there yet? And not like a kid asking on a long drive in the car, this is exasperation. This isn't a chill morning with your coffee on the back porch prayer. This is a prayer of distress. At your breaking point, intensely isolated, desolated, hopeless, despairing, like a man in a desert wasteland, like a person who's having a panic attack, tight-chested, where the idea of breathing has seemed to drift away like mist, like a woman whose friends have all erased her memory from their minds, 
The psalmist David is desolated. He feels forgotten. He says, is this forever? Is this my new normal? God, you've hid your face from me. You're not present. I feel the gaping hole of your absence. One, one Puritan puts it as, as how much turmoil it is for the godly man to sense God's absence. Like when you're love with the love of your soul and you don't sense him around, that's the turmoil. That's the anguish of, I want you. Where are you? The, the Bible is the most honest book about our lives. <laughs> it describes so well life as a sinner and sufferer in a broken, fallen world. Do you know what I mean? This has described us. We felt forgotten by God like he is the friend who never texts you back. He's gotten busy with the other people or more important stuff, and he's turned his attention from you. Like you're the child whose parents forgot to call you on your birthday. When you're hoping and asking God for relief or healing or rescue and nothing changes, it feels like he's forgotten you, like he's discarded you. And we felt those times when he seems absent, not just forgotten, but absent. When he seems to remove his presence from us. When we're suffering and feel like he's walked away from us. Like a hospital patient in ICU whose best friend left one night and never returned. No explanation just absence and our suffering and our apathy and our doubts we, we seem to be alone God is hiding from us when we feel like we need him the most he feels unavailable in your miscarriage in your marital conflict, in those dreary, weary work days. In your habitual sin. In your loss. In your rejection. In your defeat, where are you? Where's your face? Why are you hiding? This isn't the time for I hide and seek. God, I, I, I want to see you. Where are you? And he says, how long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. Gut-wrenching, soul-sucking, mind-exhausting pressure and the squeeze of anxiety. 
how long will I feel this? How long will I agonize and be in the state of uncertainty and fear? When will you calm and quiet my soul? When will you remove this thorn in my side? When will you give me peace? How long until peace? How long until shalom? How long until wholeness? Man, anxiousness, I feel splintered. Like a tree branch forcefully bent too far. The psalmist brings us into their world because this is our world. We felt the anxious concerns swirling and building within us, anxious about the future, hyper-vigently scanning the horizon for all threats, anxious about what might happen, anxious and worried about what won't happen, anxious about that relationship, anxious about the most recent conversation. We, we've known the agonizing war of thoughts in our mind, the push and pull, the downward spiral of shame and lies, the doubts like, is this really what life is about? Or are we just on a hamster wheel of monotony with no purpose? We know the scathing cynicism, the burning anger, the thoughts of giving up and throwing in the towel. How long? Like, we know that. I think we also know with David that, that feel of defeat. David feels defeated by his enemy, dominated. He's losing. And God, who empowered him to knock Goliath to the dirt, is missing. David's in the ring and in the ring alone getting crushed. So what's now? You're going you're gonna to let me do this when I was younger to then humiliate me now? Will I lose my kingship? Will I be humiliated? Again, the, the Bible gives us words and imagery to express our lives. We felt that too. Or I have. I need to stop speaking for we, I guess. I felt defeated, dominated by our enemy. Our enemy sin that's ravaged our lives and relationships. At times it feels like we've completely lost, like we've gone eight rounds with it by ourselves and we're just getting beat to a pulp. No fight left in us, only resignation. That's one sin what about our enemy this idolatrous age constantly seducing tempting alluring pulling saying no 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 discard jesus come this way discard jesus bow down to this jesus was was good back then but but no no bow down to these gods come this way we felt dominated by those idols more formed into their image than Jesus. That's two. Then our enemy, death. Always lingering, always speaking, 
always trying to remind us what's around the corner. Our enemy, the devil, is trying to, to kill our joy. Kill our trust. Destroy our communion with God. Don't, don't our bodies feel like an enemy to it sometimes? Like our bodies are an enemy beating us into submission and we're like, I don't know what to do about this. How do I fight back? And so... So this broken world is broken. Feels like it's beating us down. All the injustice, murder, hate, racism, greed, lying, it feels more and more dark with no hope for change. How long? How long will our enemies dominate us? What I'm trying to show you is that the Lord has given you a way to talk to him, even in your pain, even in your suffering, even when your enemies, your sin, this idolatrous age, the devil, are breathing down your throat. He's saying, hey, I know you're anxious. I know you feel defeated. Where are you going to go to when you're suffering? Like I said, this isn't a chill morning prayer on the porch. This is desperate. This is emotional, this prayer. So two items I want to save from here. Number one, God gave us emotions and he gave us the Psalms to guide them. Meaning some of us are prone to stuff our emotions. We think Christians shouldn't feel these things, so we ignore them and press them down into stomach ulcers, you know, that good practice. Other of us are more, others of us are more in tune with our feelings and better expressing them, but we're so directed by our feelings that they direct what we believe about the Father and his world, and so we, we can't unhinge from the truth and be led around by our emotions, in essence, shepherded by our feelings. The, the Psalms shape us to feel like Jesus and express our emotions like Jesus. Meaning God's not giving you wild emotions and no direction. <laughs> the, the Psalms are a teacher. God gives us here in the Psalms the language to use. And he, he shepherds us in the Psalms to bring your questions, your emotions to him. The Psalter is an amazing gift of God to us. So that's number one. Number two is what I've already said. Where do you go when you're in pain or suffering? Where do you go? I didn't say who, because you'd be like, Jesus, right? I'm like, no, I'm asking an honest question. I'm asking for an honest answer. Where do you go in pain, suffering, 
What's your instinct? What's your default? What's your go-to? What relieves some pressure? What, what, what gives you some immediate sense of comfort or endorphin rush to kind of give you that, okay, I can breathe. I, I'm a little bit removed from this. I'm going to keep going. But also, what's that long-term thing? Not just that knee-jerk, immediate you go to, but what's that thing that you go to, run to, cry out to? The key player in the Psalter is not David or another psalmist, but God. The, the psalms are theocentric, God-centered. Elizabeth Actemeyer writes, the Psalter is not a humanistic book. Every experience and condition of humankind, right? It talks about a lot. Our, our situations, our experiences, our conditions is set in relation to the God of Israel. Therein lies the Psalter's greatness. So the, these poems talk a lot about our feelings, but these poems don't focus on our thoughts or our feelings. Because of the selfishness of our sin, we can make everything self-referential, right? Turn it somehow where it's about us and read it only from a viewpoint of what it is to us or about us. But the Psalms are God-referential. They're always written in relation to, to God. In deep distress, David goes to God. To the one that he feels like ran away from him, abandoned him, is not present there. That's where David goes. That's what this psalm is doing to us. It's saying, okay, thank you for your honest answer about where you've been going in your pain and suffering. But if you're in Christ this is the location. This is the place to go. This is the person to cry out to. And this is not new news to most. What I'm saying is, you actually have to go to him. Take your grief to the Lord. Take your loss and pain to the Lord. There's no psalm that's leading you to do it alone. There's no psalm leading you to look to a mere human as your functional savior. There's many psalms repeatedly telling you when you're crying, when you're hurt, when you're suffering, when you're grieving, when you've lost another amazing thing that you thought you were going to have forever and now that person or that relationship or that thing is gone, go to the Lord. Cry out to God. So David desperately ask Yahweh where are you how long will this continue and then he asked in verse 3 and 4 for the Lord to help to intervene to hear 
Verse 3, consider me and answer me, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. So he's taking his feelings to God. He's taking his questions to God. And now he's saying, look on me, hear me, answer me. I'm pleading, reveal your face to me. Come back and help me, Yahweh, my God. So he, he boldly questions God, right? Those questions, you, you should have some semblance. Like, that's bold to ask the Lord. I should have said that earlier. But what I'm saying is, he boldly asks God, but, uh, uh, questions God, but now he boldly requests from God. Ask the Lord to intervene to work. And again, I think we know these moments. I think we know those moments when we're begging the Lord to make it stop. When we're crying out and the sky feels like it's a tin roof and all of our requests are bouncing back to us. It's like, I, am I talking to myself? Am I talking so that I can hear myself talk? We want God to hear us and acknowledge us and rescue us from our pain, our loneliness, our suffering, our anxiety. Without God's intervention, we're stuck, declining, defeated. So God, help us, look on us with your favor and grace. Hear us and act on our behalf. In the Psalms, the experience of anguish is expressed by that phrase, the dimness of the eyes. You see it in people's eyes when they're in anguish. But when God blesses you and relieves you from troubles, protects you, gives you peace and shows you favor, then your, your heart is shown in your face. One author states, your eyes sparkle with God's grace. What a contrasting phrase. From the dimness of eyes to your eyes sparkle with God's grace. So he's asking, restore brightness. Seeing your face, God, will change my face, God. Do it. Let me see you. That your transforming presence will transform my downcast soul to joy and gratitude. So please, let me hear from you. Let me see you. Show me your face. If not, my enemies are going to win. They'll declare victory, rejoice in my defeat. Your enemies will win. They'll gloat. They'll gloat in my defeat. Your enemies, God, will rejoice that you failed to keep your covenantal promise. That's what David's saying. It's as if David's saying, you had better come through, God, or my enemies will win and you will look bad. Please deliver me. This is similar to Moses in Numbers 14 when he's begging the Lord to not strike down the nation of Israel or the other nations will hear about it and what? They won't say, man, look at Israel, those goofballs. They have no clue what they're doing. Their strategy, busted. 
Leadership, bad. No. What he begs the Lord is don't strike down Israel or our enemies will hear about it and say, you, Lord, are weak and powerless. So don't let this happen so that you won't be seen as weak and powerless. For your namesake, for your reputation. Like if you don't help, what are people going to say about your character, God? David appeals to his fame, his reputation. Deliver me so no one can ridicule your power and glory. Again, this is theocentric, right? David's motivation, primarily, there's, there's other motivations, no doubt, but primary motivation, God's fame and reputation. Not about our glory, not about our reputation, not about how we look, but for the glory of God. Also like Moses, take an honest think where else would you go I asked you where you were going but like Moses consider legitimately in your pain in your grief in your suffering where else would you go Who's going to give you that, that perfect response? Who's going to be wonderfully compassionate, but also realistically firm? So David takes his questions, his emotions, his request to God. It's an act of faith to keep running to God and asking to him to help. We, we don't know. We don't know how long it took him to write this song. We don't know how much time is between verses 4 and verses 5. I still have prayers. I still have things I've written in my journals that are incomplete. Someday I hope to complete them. I say that all to say, there, there's, there's, this isn't quick for David. There's a season, there's a time where he feels like he's pleading and nothing is changing. So what do you do when nothing's changing? Do you give up and stop trusting? Do you Turn to an idol to bail you out. Here's what David does. Verse 5. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. As most lament psalms do, this one concludes with a turn, with a turn to express confidence and commitment to, to the Lord. 
God, I, I honestly bring you my circumstances and my questions and my feelings and my requests, but I put my trust in you. My confidence is in you, in your faithful love. My, my hope it's not this situation. My hope is not this other person. My hope is not this relationship. My hope is your character, your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to me. My enemies may say I'm defeated and rejoice in my broken state, but I will say you faithfully love and my heart will rejoice in your deliverance. You're faithful to your covenant. That's what David's saying. He's not forgotten. God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 that he will give him rest from all his enemies and will build a house for him and his house and kingdom will endure forever. And David trusts that God is faithful to his covenant. The Lord in all caps, Yahweh, our God, is the covenant-keeping God. David can turn. David can say this. David can believe this and confess this because God will not break his promises. God is not breaking his promises. So David turns and states, I Trust your covenant, not my circumstances. I trust, God, your faithfulness, not my feelings. I trust your faithful love, not my sense or perception of loneliness. My hope is in your covenant faithful love so David is leading us in times of deep distress suffering pain you remember God's covenant remember God's past generosity it may feel like he's stingy right now but remember how he's dealt with you in the past it may be like he's withholding from you like hey, you got to do x y and z before it's going to happen but we're going to let his generosity lead our thinking not again our circumstances or our feelings but i do think there's an honest question there of how can you keep praying to God even when you feel forgotten or abandoned or anxious or defeated? But the answer is you, you remember and bank on God's past performance. I'm looking at one business guy and I was thinking about how he hires people and how I think about hiring people talk about sometimes is past performance will will predict future right 
if we can do that with employees to possibly then hire them based upon that information, can that not apply to the Lord God who reigns? You, his past performance shows you what's going to happen in the future. If, if he's been generous and if he's faithful and if he's steadfast, he's going to keep being generous. All of this culminates for us in the person and ministry of Jesus. In God's covenant to David, God also promised, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So how can I know he's generous to you? It's because he's faithful to his promises. He's not breaking them. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He's the royal descendant of David. He's the son of God, the promised king, the one who displays God's faithful love. How? By delivering us from sin. By delivering us from our other enemy, this idolatrous age. By rescuing us from our enemy death there's no sting anymore Jesus took the curse we deserve to rescue us from it and that we might live life with God enjoying his faithful love and loving him with all our heart with all our soul with all our mind with all our strength To see the fulfillment of the promise made to David in the face of Jesus is to know truly, truly, he's treated us generously. We looked at Ephesians last year, this verse, but I want to see it again. Chapter 2 to think about his, his dealing generously with us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, is rich in mercy, great love, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You're saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. If you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So Christian, you may be in the midst of it, you may be in the thick of it, but you can turn like David and trust him and put your confident faith in him because Christian he's treated you generously he's revealed his great love for you on the cross so so again put your faith your confidence your trust in his faithful love if you're not a Christian that looks like realizing your your deepest enemy 
are coming after you. Your deepest problem is your sin against God, your lack of love, your lack of submission to the Lord who reigns. It means acknowledging that you need to be delivered and rescued. And not just from things outside, but from your rebellion, your apathy against the Lord. And then believing that this, oh, this is what Christianity means. Not I work to get to him, but he comes to me and gives me all of his kindness and grace through the cross. Yeah, you believe that. That's how he's dealing with you. Graciously, generously giving you himself, his son. So you turn like David at verse 5, but you, you turn from your sin and confess and believe Jesus is, is the Lord who loves and he's the Lord who reigns. Two things I want to highlight from this, from this psalm. Number one, ask and keep asking. Be persistent. It's an active expression of dependent. David must have been struggling for a while to write, how long, how long, how long? He keeps asking. Instead of letting the experience of suffering and God's seeming distance drive you away from God, let it drive you to him. If you don't sense his presence, that doesn't mean run to the closest convenience store of idolatry to get some sense of relief in your suffering. It means let his sense of absence drive you to say, where are you? I need you. And I'm at this door. I'm going to keep knocking on this door. I'm not going to go to another door because you're going to respond. I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to keep asking you till you show your face, till you work, till you move, till you answer. Refuse suppressing your emotions. Refuse suppressing your questions and your request. Refuse to stay in your head thinking about everything, everything in essence, praying to yourself. All of your anxieties and concerns you repeat to yourself in your mind, essentially praying to yourself. Rather, turn and bring them all to your faithful and loving Father who sees you, who knows you, who hears you. The one you can bank on because of his covenant to you in Jesus' blood. I said a lot about seeming absence or the lack of God's presence but by Jesus' blood, the promise is he will never leave you or forsake you.
He's there. Ask. Keep asking. Secondly, sing and keep singing. As I said up front, this was for the choir director to be sung liturgically. Keep singing to God. The psalm ends with, I will sing to the Lord for he has treated me generously. This song is to be sung and in the song you sing. I will sing. It's too meta for me. But But the song itself is leading you to rejoice, <laughs> to sing to him. And then it tells you in the song to keep singing to him. You choose gratitude by singing to Jesus about all he is and all he has done for you. Joni Erickson Tata, who became paraplegic by a tragic accident, stated, singing your way through suffering is a way to incline your heart to God. She can say that by her very real experience, and she can also say that demonstrably because she's read Psalm 13. Singing your way through suffering is a way to incline your heart to God, even when you feel alone, anxious, defeated, or that God is absent, go to him. Trust him. Trust his covenant, not your circumstances. Trust his faithfulness, not your feelings. The Lord reigns. The Lord loves. So what are we going to do? In our past, maybe wounds or our current ones, we're going to go to him and take this to him. And then we're going to know We're going to know how good he is to us. Because let me be very frank. If you don't grieve these things to the Lord, if you press them down, I joked about stomach ulcers, but the reality is they will seep out somewhere. That angerness, that angst, that angry, that anger, that angst, that bitterness, that pain, that suffering. If all you're doing is taking it to yourself in prayer to yourself or going to some other person to be your functional savior, it, it's. Or it's just going to come out. And it doesn't come out usually gently or at a convenient time or in ways that even make sense. It's going to come out. Why? Because as we saw in Proverbs, God's created this world to work in a certain way. And one of the ways after the fall 
is that he gives us himself and these kind of psalms to lead us to talk to him, to cry out to him. Like this is, this is the, the way, this is the path to grieve, to process, to work through this stuff with the Lord. And my warning is just, if not, if you don't, know it's going to happen. It's usually going to happen destructively, so why not go to him? Take his sweet invitation of, hey, I've written some for you so that you can understand your emotions and bring them to me so you don't become a chaotic maniac over the span of your life. Say, yes, Lord, here's my pain. Here's my suffering. Where are we going to go? We're going to go to you. I'm going to go to you. So if that's you, go to him. I'm going to pray right now. You as well, go to him. Now, talk to him. Cry to him. Take your feelings, your emotions to him. Those questions. Father, I... pray you would help us to, to take your invitation to come to you. Those, those wounds that are raw or feel so personal or private, Lord, I pray that we would take them to you. So pray that you'd lead us to turn and be able to rejoice and trust because how you've dealt with us in the past. So Lord, I also know that just the crying out itself is an act of faith. So I, I pray for that this morning. I'm going to ask your spirit to help us sing even if we don't feel it or feel like it to keep singing in Jesus name